We'll go over a few announcements. Just a reminder that Chafer Pastors Conference is this coming week. Sunday is when a lot of the action begins, and that is going to be an important time for us to have some help uh, immediately after church Sunday from some men to help set up uh, for the conference. Reminder that next week, this time, there will not be any Bible class because uh, everybody's exhausted after the Chafer Conference. So um, <clears throat> there won't be any Bible class then. And then, um, let me see, what else was there? Uh, men's Prayer Breakfast is the Saturday the 16th at 7.30. And then also note on um, April uh, 13th, we'll have our annual annual church picnic. I wanted to uh, make an, also make an announcement tonight that uh, apparently last night or this morning, uh, Phyllis Gehrman, who lives in uh, Pennsylvania, has a daughter, Patty Gehrman, who did tremendous work for, uh, for us for many years, creating an index for Dean Bible Ministries. But uh, the f- whole family uh, are very faithful listeners and prayer supporters, supporters for Dean Bible Ministries. And so the mom, Phyllis, who's been suffering with Alzheimer's, went to be with the Lord uh, either last night or this morning, and so we need to be in prayer for for that family. And also, um, I'm going to have to dig this out because I can never remember his name. Also, um, this week, Ron Ostermiller, who you might recognize if you saw him, they he uh, came to the church for a while and off and on kind of sporadically, and I hadn't seen him for about a year. Apparently, he's been ill because he went to be with the Lord a couple of days ago, and there'll be a memorial service here. We'll announce that as well. He's one of the folks that came over from uh, Katie Bible, uh, First Baptist Katie, rather. So we uh, <clears throat> need to remember those folks and those families uh, in prayer. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll make sure that we're ready to study the word, we're ready to focus on what God the Holy Spirit has to teach us, to challenge us with this evening from his word, but that means that we need to be in right relationship with the Lord. If we have sinned, then we've stopped walking by the Holy Spirit, we're walking according to the the, uh, sin nature, and so to recover, we simply need to confess sin, to admit our sin to God, the Father in silent prayer, and then Uh, instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer.
Our Father, it's such a great privilege to be here this evening and joy to see friends and others in this church that are our acquaintances who we enjoy great fellowship with because of your grace. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to join together and to study your word, to be reminded of the things that you have given us, the things you've provided us with. And Father, we need to be constantly reminded that we are to stand firm in your strength. Now, Father, we pray that as we study through this section in Ephesians tonight, that you would help us to see where we need to make this a more conscientious effort and understanding what you've given us that we may uh, implement it, put it into practice on a regular basis. In Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. So on Sunday morning, we're in Ephesians 1, and on Thursday night, we're in Ephesians 6. All we have to do is fill in what's in between, right? So that'll take a couple of weeks. What has happened here? Oh, my goodness. This was, what in the world? There we go. One of those nights, one of those days. Okay, let's... uh, remind ourselves of what we're studying in 1 Peter chapter 5 because, and it's been interesting as I've been studying and reading through various uh, commentaries, various uh, articles and things related to uh, the armor of God, nearly everyone makes a point that Ephesians 6 tells us how to apply 1 Peter 5, and which is exactly what we're doing. So in Ephesians uh, excuse me, 1 Peter 5, 8, we're given the command to be sober, and that really means to think objectively, to think without wrong influences on our thinking. Uh, wrong influences being thinking from emotion, uh, thinking from subjectivity, thinking on the basis of human viewpoint, thinking on the basis of of wrong systems of belief. But we are to be... Uh, to think objectively and clearly and to be watchful all the time because our adversary, the devil, is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, the context of all this, as we've been studying, is in the area of testing, in the area of temptation. Our first illustration from the Old Testament came from Job 1 and 2. And then we're told the solution here. It's very interesting that we're never told about in the epistles from Romans through Jude, which are written to instruct church-age believers on how to face and surmount and handle whatever problems we're going to face in this life, we're never once told to take dominion over Satan. We're never once told to cast out demons, not one time. So if this is a problem we are supposed to face, we're given zero instructions on the primary literature for the church on how to handle that. I've always thought that that is a remarkable reality. It's an argument from silence, but it's a silence that screams. That if if that was a problem, then we would have instructions on how to deal with it. The solution is to resist him, to take a stand against uh, Satan. And we do that by standing firm, being steadfast, immovable by means of the faith, that is, by means of doctrine. So 
understanding how we are to uh, resist him, and that's this word here, antistemi, which is a word that either in its compound form of anti plus histemi or in just the singular verb histemi occurs about four times in Ephesians 6, uh, 10 through 17. So this is looking at what the Bible says about victory in temptation or testing, and so we'll just go through a bit of review. As Paul comes to the last part of this epistle, we get to the last section. The first section tells us, as we've been studying on Sunday morning, about the wealth that we have in Christ. That's chapters 1 through 3. The second section, 4, 1 through 6, 9, tells us about how we are to walk on in light of our wealth. That is, how we are to live our Christian life in terms of all of the assets and privileges and blessings that God has given us. And then that then is the foundation for being able to uh, work out our victory in terms of spiritual warfare. So finally, my brethren introduces this conclusion that my brethren tells us he's talking to believers. So that immediately should inform us that the instructions here do not have to do with positional truth. They don't have to do with getting saved with a justification. It has to do with spiritual life truth, phase phase two. So he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's the New King James. And last time I went over this and I said, based on the grammar, it should be translated, finally, my brethren, be strengthened by means of the Lord. It's that preposition in plus the dative indicating instrumentality. He is the means by which we are strengthened. It's a uh, present active imperatives uh, are present middle imperative, which means that the present tense indicates that it's ongoing, and the imperative indicates that this should be a standard operating procedure in the Christian life. So it's by means of the Lord and by means of his mighty power, another way of talking about his omnipotence. The way we do this is going to be described as resisting the devil or standing firm against him. That comes out in 6.13, and it's also repeated in James 4, 7, that we're to submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You have two options in life. You're either submitting to God or you're uh, in rebellion against God. If you're submitting to God, then you are walking by the Holy Spirit. If you are not submitting to God, if you're in rebellion with him, then you're walking according to the sin nature, and you're in danger of becoming one of the devil's disciples. You won't lose your salvation, but you're living exactly as Satan wants you to live. You have failed the test. The roaring lion has gotten the best of you. In 1 Peter 5, 9, but resist him firm by means of your faith or steadfast by means of your faith. So that's the word that we're talking about that shows up again and again. And in this section in 6.11, we are to uh, stand firm. Uh, and in 6.13, it's antistemi, which intensifies it, resist or stand against or oppose someone. And then histemi is again repeated in 6.14. So <clears throat> these terms are also used in military context to communicate defensive position. So the first or the first command that we saw, saw was to um, uh, be strong and by means of the Lord and by means of his 
uh, mighty power. The second command that we see is in 611, and that is that we are to put on the whole armor of God. And so it's important to trace through these things, but the reason we do it is to stand firm against the schemes or the strategies or the wiles of the devil because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the ruler, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And this tells us that no matter what's going on in the human scene, let's just think about Congress a minute. Lots going on these days. Those Democrats in Congress, and trust me, a lot of Republicans in Congress don't think that they all have it together, that they are not the real problem. The problem is they have been deceived by, by Satan. You have uh, at least three or four in Congress that are deceived by Satan and are followers of the false god Allah, and that is energizing their anti-Semitism. And if you're not following the news, and you should be because things just get worse all the time from a human perspective, is that the Democrats are, are actually coming apart at the seams this week because they are put in a position where they have to, um, they, they need to do something about the anti-Semitism that's coming out of two recently elected Muslim representatives, uh, Ilan Omar from Minnesota and then Rashida Tlaib, or however you pronounce it, who comes from uh, Michigan. Now, what's interesting is they are advocates not only of of anti-Semitism, but they're also advocates uh, of, of, of socialism. Now, the other thing that's been in the news in just the last couple of months is how uh, the Democrat legislature in New York has passed legislation that... Uh, it's okay to take the life of a baby after it's born. And this has been a debate that's also surfaced in Virginia, and you now have a lot of Democrats who do not have, because they have rejected... I just happened to listen to Dennis Prager for a few minutes on the radio today, and he just stated it really well. He said, if you take the Torah away from the foundation of American culture, then you don't have a basis for morality. And that's what you're seeing in the Democrat Party. They have removed God from speaking to the public sphere, speaking to politics, speaking to ethics, speaking to anything, and so they have no basis for taking a stand on absolutes. And they cannot come up in the last couple of days with a statement of condemnation for um, uh, Ilan Omar over her most recent anti-Semitic a tweet, and she's been making them almost almost every week. And so now we have a party on the left that combines an unwillingness to condemn infanticide. That that just eventually leads to where, where you support infanticide, where they cannot condemn anti-Semitism, so that eventually leads to a more active forms of anti-Semitism. That's what we always see in history. And they are becoming more and more pro-socialist. Now, I'm not going to name any name a name here, but I want you to think a minute. In the last 150 years, can you name? Don't speak out loud. Can you name a political party, U.S. or some other country, that has combined socialism, anti-Semitism, and not only infanticide but euthanasia as the bulwarks of their political philosophy? That's where we're headed. 
That is exactly where this nation is headed unless they turn back to God. We're getting a strong peak at what was happening in Israel in the north back during the uh, dark ages uh, between about between Solomon and 722, so from roughly uh, the rise of Rehoboam and Jeroboam I in roughly 930 to 722, 200 years, just of the darkest times you can imagine in the northern kingdom of Israel, and then a lot of various waves of that hitting in, in the southern kingdom. And it's all energized by Satan. As I ended up with passages last time talking about how both in the Old Testament and New Testament, God points out that the worship of idols is the worship of the demons that empower the idols. These false belief systems are all the thinking of Satan. It's all uh, cosmic thinking, cosmic with a K from the, from the Greek word cosmos, which refers to the system of, of worldly thinking. That's who our struggle is against. And so we have to recognize that, that it is a spiritually based warfare coming out of the angelic conflict, which we touched on when we were looking at, at, um, at Job. <clears throat> so in this section, we have four basic commands. There is a fifth command that I didn't fit onto the chart that comes in in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation, but we will probably end there today. Uh, I mean, at the end of class, if we get there. But the first command is to be strong in the Lord, which we've already looked at in 6.10. Second, to put on the whole armor of God. It means to clothe yourself in the armor of God. The third command is to take up the whole armor of God. And then the fourth command is to stand, therefore. And then the fifth command is uh, uh, from Decemai which means to receive something or to take it, and that's in verse uh, 17, to take the helmet of salvation. So what I want to point out here is each of these are participles. This is where you get off in the weeds and the grammar. But you have these basic (coughs) imperatives, and then, um, excuse me, these are all imperatives, rather. And then within the structure of these verses, you get into the participles. So you have present imperative, which emphasizes a standard operating procedure. An aorist imperative emphasizes something that's urgent. It's a priority. It's do it now. Uh, Elevate this to your highest level of your priorities. Um, That's what we have with put on the full armor of God. Verse 3, it's an aorist active imperative to take up the whole armor of God. So notice you have an aorist middle imperative, and down here you have an aorist active imperative. And the middle voice indicates that you participate in the action for the benefit of yourself, but the object is the same in both of those commands. That is the armor of God. And in the second, it is a different verb, but it has the same idea to take up or to put on. What's interesting is that this word analambano is often used in non-biblical references and in a number of biblical references to refer to, put, to, to taking up your, your weapons to go into battle. So it's de- definitely Paul is ta- thinking within a uh, military battle uh, context. And then when you get to the fourth one, it's an aorist uh, Aorist active imperative. All of them are second person plurals addressed to the people. Now, what happens is uh, related to those, <clears throat> you have these, these um, 
the participles. For example, you, um, when you look at verse verse thirteen, is that the first, no verse eleven? Put on the whole armor of God. Uh, no, first let's look at thirteen. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist. So once you get to verse fourteen, did I mistype that? Stand therefore. Yeah, when you get to verse fourteen. then you get into the armor. Stand therefore, and you have these phrases, having girded, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith uh, with which you'll be able. So you have these I-N-G words, and all of those, we'll just state it at the beginning, but you can remember it, all of those can be understood to be either causal or instrumental. By causal, it would read, stand therefore because you have girded your waist with truth. And, and that works. And, and that can work grammatically because an aorist participle follow, can precede the action of the aorist imperative. So that would reflect that. But it can also be at the same time. So it's very, very difficult to decide whether this is causal or instrumental. Both work. We either stand because we have girded our waist with truth, or we stand by girding our waist with truth. But both of them are, are, are saying, in effect, that you can't stand unless you gird your waist with truth. So that's, that's the relation. And all through here, each of these uh, participial clauses all can either be taken and understood causally or instrumentally, but they both communicate pretty much the same idea. So we have a command in verse 13 to take up uh, the whole armor of God. And the idea here is to emphasize the defensive nature of our warfare. And it introduces the concept of the armor of God. Now, I've read some people and heard some people over the years who try to make every element of this analogy walk on all fours. And you can't do that. Analogies and metaphors are not meant to to walk on all fours. And so they make very hard and fast absolute statements regarding each, uh, each element of the armor. And Paul is just uh, assigning different spiritual metaphors to each element of the of the armor. Let me and and it all flows out of an Old Testament general Old Testament background, which talks about uh, God as our defense. So he's just doing what a lot of preachers do, and he may use one illustration and and massage it one way one time, and then the next time he'll take the armor illustration and it'll be slightly different. But the point is, it's defensive. We have to stand in the mighty power of God. That's that's what it comes from. So when you go back into the Old Testament, you have a number of different ways in which God is represented as our defensive Line. He is our bulwark. He's a fortress. He's a shield. He's an, a high tower. He is a rock. All of these are different metaphors to describe the fact that that we hide in God and He's the one who protects us. It's not for us to go out and engage 
the enemy in the battle. It is for us to rest in God. That is with regard to um, that, that's with regard to our our combat in spiritual warfare. It doesn't mean we don't do anything because we still pray, we still engage in doing our daily life, we still uh, engage in our responsibilities in the family. But we are. This is the resting side of the faith rest drill. So we have. Uh, passages like Psalm 3.3, but you, O Lord, are a shield to me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. So if you're down, you need to remind yourself God is the one who protects you, and he's the one who, through the word of God, is going to lift you up. He's going to uh, strengthen you so that when you're feeling down, blue, depressed, discouraged, then you need to focus on God as the one who will uh, who will lift you up. In some correlated passages that talk about God as our shield are in Psalm 512, Psalm 1830 and 35, Psalm 287, and Psalm 91.4. That's just a few. It's used many more times than that. The second verse is found in Psalm 18.2. These are great verses to memorize, by the way. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Horn is a metaphor for power. Loosen up the vocal cords a little. So talks about God as a fortress in Psalm 31, 2, uh, 71, 3, and 91, 2. Another great passage is in Psalm 119, 114. You are my hiding place, like hiding in the cleft of the rock. You are my hiding place and my shield again. I hope in your word. In other words, my confident expectation comes from your word. If you don't have hope in your life, then you need to get into the word because it's the word that gives us hope. It's the word that gives us an optimism about the future. Uh, even when things look look pretty dark, uh, God is the one who is going to give us that that hope. I hope in your word or by means of your of your word. And and another passage that uses the same these same metaphors: Psalm thirty two verse seven. Another one in Psalm one hundred forty four two. God speak. speak uh, David speaking about God, my loving kindness, my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer my shield, and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. Now, that didn't mean that David just was passive and did not administer the kingdom or go out and give uh, directives and order and be involved in how the the country was run, or was run but he knew that, that ultimately it was God who provided uh, authority orientation uh, to his people. And then we have Psalm 31, 2. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. So what we see here in this last phrase, it's a fortress of defense. God is our defense. God is the one who protects us, and he gives us uh, these various metaphors and descriptors to help us to understand that we are to rest in him. Now, another passage that we come to in the Old Testament that is, a, I think, an important background for what Paul is saying in Ephesians six ten through 17 
is in Isaiah 59, 17, a passage that's describing the coming of the Messiah and the defeat of Israel's enemies. He said, for he, talking about Messiah, he put on righteousness as a breastplate. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. Well, in, in uh, Ephesians 6.14, we have the breastplate of righteousness. So here there's a correlation and a helmet of salvation on his head. And if we look at verse 17, we have the phrase, the helmet of salvation. He put on the garments of vengeance. And I really don't like that translation because we think of vengeance as per- personal retribution. We're personally getting back at somebody for something that they did. And if you look at the Hebrew word, it has to do with uh, righteous justice. And and it's a very different concept. It is God executing a righteous judgment on someone. And that is not the same as personal vindictiveness. So so that's that's important to understand that that distinctive. He put on garments of vengeance, that is, he's coming to destroy the enemies of Israel at the Battle of Armageddon, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Now the New Testament uses this same kind of imagery in other places. Paul does in First Thessalonians five, eight, as well as in Second Corinthians six, seven. In 5.8, it's not the breastplate of righteousness. It's putting on the breastplate of faith and love. See, so you can't build too tight a doctrine on the breastplate of righteousness as a, uh, in terms of uh, uh, drawing connections to a, Roman, a literal Roman breastplate when it's just a metaphor of protection. Uh, Paul uses breastplate of faith, faith and love in 5.8 and a helmet, the hope of salvation. So it is. Uh, he adds something to the phrase used elsewhere as helmet of salvation to the hope of salvation. That clearly distances it from a phase one sense of getting saved or justified. 2 Corinthians 6, 7, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness. So here the whole, uh, whole armor is righteousness on the right hand and on the on, on the left. So, um, and then in Romans thirteen twelve it says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So all of that is to say that the purpose for these metaphors is to emphasize that God as the one who protects us, defends us, provides for us, and we take shelter in him. We rest in his power, and we're strong in his omnipotence, not in ours, and we try to stay out of his way. I won't have a show of hands of how many of you have gotten in God's way just in the last three hours, but... That's pretty standard for most believers. We say, okay, God, it, you, you do it the way you want to do it, and I'm going to rest in you. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute, give it, give it right back. And then we get in a little tug of war for a while uh, with God, and that's, that, we have to learn that. We go through that learning process as we grow and mature. So we're down at verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. So this is to our defensive protection what God supplies us to protect us in the midst of spiritual warfare because we've got an invisible enemy that we can't see. We've got an enemy that outpowers us to the nth degree. 
we're just overwhelmed. It's like a little league team trying to play the Super Bowl team, and no holds barred. It just it, it, we're we're helpless. So we have to rely completely upon the Lord. So we take up the full armor of God for the purpose that we're able to resist. That's our mission is to stand firm, be steadfast by means of the faith. That's how we resist the devil. And so it, <clears throat> Paul says that you will be able to resist, that is to stand firm or to oppose the attack, in the evil day, that's not talking about the last days. That's talking about any day when we're encountering an attack uh, that we may not understand that it's coming from Satan. How many indications are there in Job 1 and 2 that when Job heard of the storms that killed his kids or he heard of the raiders that came in and stole all of his um, livestock, that that was Satan. He had no idea. Satan was behind it, but as far as he was concerned, there is an immediate human, physical, biological, meteorological cause for things. And what has happened in a lot of the uh, popular uh, language and verbiage on spiritual warfare is we go out and we do battle with the devil and we ignore the intermediacy. He uses these intermediate causes to to test us and to challenge us and to uh, bring adversity into our life. And we have to deal with those physical realities. We have to deal with disease. If it's disease, we have to deal with, with hurricanes. If they're hurricanes, we have to deal with floods. If they're floods or car problems, if they're car problems, or we have to deal with those things at that level. But we also understand that there's something going on in an invisible dimension. And so we can take all of the same actions our unbelieving next-door neighbor takes but we're going to wrap it up in prayer and we're going to stand firm in the armor of God. That's going to be the difference because we understand that the problems we're facing are not just limited to the physical, material realm. There is a spiritual battle going on behind it. And so we may be dealing with health problems. We may be dealing with uh, car problems. We may be dealing with money problems or work problems or relationship problems. But we have to deal with those on the basis of divine viewpoint wisdom on the surface, but we have to deal with the ultimate issue by standing firm in uh, God's provision. So that's, that's what we do. We hold our ground. It's all defensive. Again, I quoted him last week on something similar, reading uh, Dr. Honer in his commentary on Ephesians. He says, due to the military model in the present context, the idea, quote, to resist, withstand, stand one's ground, close quote, is fitting. Thus, the term denotes a defensive rather than an offensive stance. It is better to have it consistently mean a defensive stand. The whole context speaks of a firm stand before the foe, not a victorious one. See, the one who's taking the victory is the one who's doing the envelopment in the, in the invisible realm. The only person that can see what the invisible enemy is doing is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one who has more power than the invisible enemy is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we take our position and we just stand firm, and he comes in and blindsides the uh, invisible demonic foe uh, while they're not looking, and he's the only one who can do that. So we don't want to get in his way or try to take over. 
So the solution then gets introduced starting in verse um, starting in verse 14 with the introduction of the pieces of the armor. And so I'm going to start with just this overview that we have the Roman soldier as the uh, metaphor here. And so we're going to look at the fact that he's got a helmet of salvation. Uh, It starts off by girding his loins with truth, which just means that he's going to get any distractions out of the way. Then he puts on a breastplate of righteousness, which is based on our positional righteousness, but it exploits it to the development of experiential righteousness. So it's, it's focused on experiential righteousness, but it, you can't have experiential righteousness unless you first have positional righteousness. You have to be saved first and have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Then we have the shield of the faith, and it can also be, it should be understood as the act of trusting. It's the shield that consists in faith as an action, so it's trusting. So you could also translate, and I think it's a better translation to call it the shield of trust, as in the faith rest drill. It's the shield of trust. It's when we're actively trusting God that his word, the word of truth, is a shield to us. So uh, we've got the shield of trust, and then our foundation is uh, the gospel that we have peace with God. And then uh, the only weapon that we have is the word of God, which is described as the sword of the Spirit. It is applied. So let's uh, look at how these verses break down. Ephesians 6.14 introduces two pieces of armor. The uh, girding your waist with truth, that is the belt of truth, and the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, Grammatically, the command begins as... um, Isteme, to stand firm, to hold a position, to resist the enemy, and you hold your ground by doing something. I'm, I'm always a little more inclined to taking this as an instrumental, but I can clearly, it can clearly be caused that you can translate it, stand firm because you have girded your loins. Either way uh, gets the point across. And in this first Verb. It's the verb perizunimi, which is an aorist middle participle. Uh, middle means that you perform an action that you benefit from. It's reflexive. So you do it for your own benefit, and it emphasizes your individual responsibility. And the idea of girding your loins is to t- take, uh, if you see you know, it, a, a great a great uh, movie to watch is the Charlton Heston version of Ben Hur, and you see these scenes earlier where the Roman soldiers are have their armor off and they have their robes underneath, and and you, you, if you get in a fight when you have all those robes getting tangled around your legs and everything else, and you can trip yourself up and and lose pretty easily. So, But when they would put their armor on, they would pull that out of the way and tie it up into their waist belt so that, in, in effect, the illustration is get rid of the distractions that will trip you up in life. And so, And the way to do that is by means of truth, only by... 
looking at the truth of God's word, the objective truth of God's word, and applying it in your life, are you going to be able to uh, know what the real distractions are and then uh, then remove them? So this is the, the first image here that we that we run across is it has to do with the um, with the clothing. This belt is the central piece of equipment that the soldier would wear, and the other pieces of the armor, for example, the sword and the breastplate, are also attached to this belt. So he's got the belt of truth, and the belt belt of truth is related to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's the basis for truth and also to the breastplate of righteousness. And we only know about how to live a righteous life on the basis of, uh, of, of God's Word. So this whole idea of girding yourself is to um, emphasize preparation. Preparation, that you don't get prepared for the challenges of life when they come. It's too late. You prepare for the challenges of life for years ahead of time by studying the Word, memorizing promises, being in Bible class, taking your notes, going home, thinking your way through the notes, talking with other believers about uh, what you've learned in class, sorting it through, things like that. That's how you build your comprehension where you internalize uh, the truth. Um, in Hebrews 12.1, we're told to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. That's the idea of, of girding up your loins uh, with truth to make sure that you get all of these distractions, which are sinful, out of your way um, so that you can focus on life as it is. Truth in this context refers to objective truth, that which is real. We live in a world today when there's a lot of problems with people understanding truth. The main idea most people have today is, well, you have your truth and I have my truth, and your truth is your truth because it works for you, and my truth is my truth because it works for me, and don't be trying to make your truth be my truth because it won't work for me. And so truth becomes relative, and once truth becomes relative, truth is useless. You end up being like the Democrat Party today, and most of the Republicans too, because most of them never, aren't too serious about the Word of God, is that they have no foundation for, their, for what they believe, which is why they get blasted and blown like, like by, by the winds of the times, and they can't take a firm stand. You go back and you read the spiritual lives of some of the founding fathers like Elias Boudinot. My goodness, these people make us look like midgets. They really knew the word. They, they hadn't spent most of their life distracted by the entertainment of movies and television and uh, fiction reading and all of these other things. They didn't have a whole lot to read, and they read good things. They read good books on law, and they read, good, they read the Bible uh, tremendously, and they read good, good theology. So they understood what truth was, and so we have to understand the importance of truth. Remember what Jesus said in John seventeen seventeen. He's praying to the Father, and he says, um, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. It is an absolute right standard. It is an objective truth, but it has to be understood, and it has to be applied. 
That's what Jesus refers to in John 8.32 when he says, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. It is that application of the truth that brings a capacity for freedom and an understanding of what freedom is. And we live in a world today when, when so many uh, people in America have lost a desire for freedom. They are like the Israelites in the wilderness after they got out into the desert and they had to go a little while and, and they were a little thirsty and they weren't getting all of the great food from all the great restaurants uh, back in Egypt that they started complaining and moaning and griping about uh, being out in the wilderness. They were free but they weren't getting all the food and all the comforts that they had enjoyed back in Egypt, so they were willing to sell themselves to the government, enslave themselves to a tyrannical government in order to have a few comforts. And that's the mentality of a slave, and that generation never got past it. And see, what we see now in this country is we see a generation coming up that has a slave mentality and they have really been cultivated to work on the Democrat slave plantation and the federal government slave plantation, expecting the government to take care of things. And one of the things that made this country great was the idea that you weren't going to rely on the government for anything and the government wasn't going to provide anything. To the degree that you look to government for any level of security, to that level you are enslaved to the government. Think about that. Up until the early 20th century, income tax was minimal, so there wasn't a financial indebtedness to the government. And so people had real freedom. You could, you could go and do. You didn't have to fill out all kinds of forms. You didn't have to spend the first uh, four or five months of every year working just to pay your tax bill to the various levels of government. And you were free to, to build a, a, a life and to develop prosperity and to develop wealth so that you could pass it on to your children. And you were, had a, a genuine freedom. But that is lost today. People don't even know what those words mean anymore when they talk about, uh, about freedom and talk about liberty. But that's what Jesus talks about. And you have to know the truth, and that truth comes from the Word of God. This is what Jesus defines for us in John seventeen seventeen, in John eight thirty two, which you shall know the truth, but it's not your truth or my truth or somebody else's truth. It is the truth that's defined as the revelation of the Word of God. And so that is what removes the distractions from our life. It exposes the, the sin in our life, and it exposes the false priorities that are in our life, and it exposes where we're expending our energy in, in ways that we shouldn't expend it, and it's just a, a waste of time and a waste of life. And so we need to remove those things because they are a hindrance, and as long as they're there, we're going to lose in these battles of spiritual warfare over and over and over again. So the first thing is that we have to gird our loins with the truth. And that comes because you dedicate yourself to study the Word. You set up time to read the Word. 
You set up time to memorize the Word. You figure out strategies to memorize Scripture. You make time to go to Bible class. You make time to listen to it over and over again. I have some people who tell me that they listen four or five times. I've had some people, I was talking to another pastor the other day who was making a comment about having difficulty at times getting all the way through Charlie Clough's framework series. And um, I said, I've got folks in my congregation who have listened to his whole framework series four, five, or maybe even six times. Because every time you go through it, you get more things out of it. Every time you go back and listen to what I have taught, you get things out of it that you didn't get the first time. And sometimes the obtuse becomes somewhat less opaque. So we have to dedicate ourselves to knowing the truth. Isaiah fifty nine seventeen introduced this concept of the righteous, righteousness and the breastplate as part of the armor of the Messiah when he returns. Now, if Jesus needs this, needs this kind of righteousness as a found, because it will be the foundation of his kingdom, then, of course, that applies to us as well. This, this breastplate of righteousness, having put on the breastplates of righteousness, relates to two things. First of all, it relates to our positional righteousness, but that's not the emphasis here. Because the emphasis here is addressed to believers, and if you're a believer, you already possess the positional righteousness of Christ. It's ours. We receive that righteousness. It's reckoned to our account, as uh, Moses tells us about about Abraham in Genesis 15.6, that he believed God, and God accounted it or reckoned it or imputed it to him as righteousness. That's quoted in Romans chapter 4, verses uh, about 2 through 5 emphasizing that that we receive righteousness as the basis for our justification because it's given to us on the basis of faith just like with, with, with Abraham. That's our positional righteousness. But you can't live ex, a, an experiential, experientially righteous life unless, first of all, you possess that real righteousness because you don't possess genuine righteousness unless you're born again, unless you have new life in Christ and you're spiritually alive. And so that uh, breastplate of righteousness means that you are removing sin from your life. This isn't legalism. This is done in the power of the Holy Spirit by walking according to uh, God the Holy Spirit. And as we do that and we learn the Word of God, we implement what it says and part of one of the things that Peter says earlier, we studied this in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is a direct command taken from the Old Testament by Peter and directly applied to church-age believers, that by holy he means we are to live a life that exemplifies being set apart to the service of God. 
that there are standards for those who are serving God. It doesn't mean you're morally perfect. It doesn't mean you're sinless because nobody now or in the Old Testament was morally perfect. Israel was never morally perfect. But they understood the grace of God so that they could be cleansed of sin and recover and walk with him and serve him. So that is what is necessary for putting on the breastplate of righteousness. We begin to live a life that conforms to God's character. This is what God is all about in Romans 8, 28, and 29. We have been, uh, we have been who God foreknow, foreknew, those he predestined, those he predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. We've studied that. It should be translated as being foreordained or, or uh, appointed ahead of time to a destiny to a role, and that role is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's not about salvation. It's about what you're supposed to be headed toward after salvation, is to be conformed to the image of Christ, and his image is holy. So that is our sanctification. Then we go to the next verse, which introduces one more element of the armor, and this is introduced again by a, uh, a participle, an aorismental participle, which indicates that the, the per, you, you, you perform the action, it's reflexive, you do it to yourself, emphasizing your personal responsibility in <clears throat> putting on the, your, the, the boots on your feet. Here's a picture. I don't know how well you can see this, uh, there were several pictures I, I looked at on the internet for this, but if you can, you can see some little lighter specks here. These are the hobnails. So you had a fairly thick leather sole on the Roman soldier sandal, and there are these hobnails coming out underneath that came out about a quarter of an inch, like cleats. And this would allow the soldier in combat to plant his feet and stand firm. He would plant his feet and he would be able to stand against the enemy so that when the enemy charged, he was in a position of strength and not in a position of, of, of weakness. And so with the uh, having shod, and this is, you know, because you have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, peace is what we get positionally with Christ when we... Uh, trust in him. When we are saved, we are reconciled to God, but we are still to pursue peace with all men. So this is the experiential application of the fact that now we are, um, we are in this position where we are reconciled to God, and because we're in that position of strength where we have peace with God, then we can go out into, into the battle and rest in him. Uh, the word translated preparation is the Greek word etoimasia, which indicates readiness. And it's the idea that you have shod your feet and with the preparation you are prepared or with the readiness of the gospel of peace. So you understand the gospel, you understand what it means, and because you understand that you were justified 
And as Paul says in Romans 5.11, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So because we are reconciled to God, because we're cleansed of sin, we understand that we're not motivated by guilt, and we can set all of that aside, and we can just focus on uh, uh, meeting the enemy. We can therefore stand firm and not be distracted by worries or concerns and other things like that. Remember, all of these pieces are put are described as defensive. So this gospel of peace is another aspect of our of our being able to defend against the onslaughts, the strategies of the devil. It prepares us with warfare against against the devil. So then we come to verse sixteen. Verse 16 begins, above all, there's uh, some different textual problems here and everything, but the basic thing here is to, to then, on top of everything that I've said already, that's the idea either way you go with the, uh, with the Greek, taking the shield of faith. And this is a, a Greek word, on a lambano, which means to take up rays, and it's used in military context for getting your weapons together and going out to face the enemy. Now, in this picture, you see that this is not talking about the smaller round shield of the Romans, but this is talking about a a much larger shield. It is a shield that's about two and a half feet wide and about four feet tall and would allow a soldier to hide behind it. It's called a thurios, and you can see how when they are in their phalanx that they can put it around them and provide complete protection from arrows coming down from above and spears and assaults from the right, so it would provide an extremely strong defensive position. And Paul says you you take the shield of faith, and that should be understood as a shield of trust. It's the active use of the faith rest drill. It is taking a promise and believing it, trusting yourself to God, trusting in that promise, applying it to the situation. And so you take the shield of trust, you take those promises and you mix them with faith, and with that you're going to be able to quench the fiery darts. That just refers to fiery arrows. The word for darts can refer to arrows. It can refer to spears. It can refer to any number of different missiles that are thrown at a, at a soldier. And they're fiery because they, uh, they bring a lot of pain and hurt and harm and difficulty in life. And we face all kinds of those, but their source is from the wicked one. Ultimately, it comes from Satan in attempts to uh, destroy us spiritually. So we take the shield of trust, which enables us to deal with these assaults. Now, we don't go out and attack him and destroy him, but we're able to put them out uh, and to deflect them because of the promises of God, so we're not overwhelmed with that. And then in verse 17, we get the last of the of the the um, <clears throat> commands here to take the helmet of salvation. And here you have a picture of the helmet. I want you to notice both in the picture I have over here where you have a metal piece that comes down and protects the back of the neck, and you see that also in the picture on the right. 
this was came into use in the Roman army during the time of uh, uh, Claudius, and he had various reforms in the 40s. And so this is what Paul would have been looking at in the in the 60s when he's imprisoned in Rome. Uh, you take the helmet that is from salvation. So the helmet protects the head. The helmet protects the mind. The helmet protects the area where the soul is, okay? So it is salvation. Now, this isn't talking about getting saved. This is talking about understanding the implications of salvation, not just phase one justification, but we are saved for a purpose, and that is to glorify God. We are, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, we're to work out our salvation with fear of trembling. This is talking about phase two spiritual growth. So we are to take the helmet of salvation, that which protects our head, protects our mind, protects our thinking, and that, and secondly, the sword of the Spirit. Now you can look down in the front of the pulpit in front of me, and you can see a pretty good representation of a Roman gladius, or the Greek word is the machaira. And this would refer to any number of short swords or daggers. It could be something that's four or five inches long or something that was a uh, uh, long uh, double-edged sword, which is the typical uh, in-close weapon of the uh, Roman soldier. They also had a larger broadsword, that they they would use, but this this sword is uh, the the Machaira is while it's an offensive offensive weapon in the context of what we're talking about, it would be used defensively to counter and to thrust. So it's it's used in a defensive manner. Now the sword is the sword from the spirit, from the source of the spirit. The sword isn't the spirit. You will hear some people, and this is typical in charismatics, among charismatics that they misunderstand the passage and they say the sword, it's the spirit that's our sword, and that's just because they're in heresy when it comes to pneumatology in those areas. The sword from the spirit, it's the word of God. It's defined that way, and the word of God, the written word and the spoken word, uh, when you utter the word of God, is what this describes. It's the scripture in application. And so the word here for translated word, the Greek is not logos. And Jesus in the beginning was the word, the logos. It is rhema. Rhema describes the spoken word of God. And we'll come back next time to look at the illustration of this from Matthew chapter 3. This describes what Jesus did when he's in the wilderness and he's attacked three times by Satan to test him. And so as a result of that, he has to, uh, he uses the word. So Satan throws a fiery dart, misusing one scripture to test him, and Jesus uh, parries and counters with quoting a scripture in context. And so we'll come back next time to get that as a great illustration of what goes on here before we continue with the last verse, verse 18. This is how we stand, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word this evening, to be reminded that our battle ultimately is with 
these spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies, that we are fighting against Satan and the powers of evil, the demons, and as they are seeking to influence uh, human history and to destroy the impact of the gospel on this nation. And there's been so much positive in this nation as a result of the internalization of your word by so many people. We continue to pray for our nation that there might be, that you might give us grace to raise up more and more uh, men of God to proclaim the truth of your word and to challenge this culture as Jonah did in the ancient world with the truth of the gospel and that there would be those that would respond and turn to you knowing that you are the only source of strength and of peace and of hope and of love and father that the only way we can have true righteousness and true justice is on the basis of your word and we pray this in christ's name amen